0: In 1864, the Radical Democracy Party nominated John C. Fremont as their candidate for the highest office in the land. They were frustrated by Abraham Lincoln's promise to reconcile with the southern states once the Civil War was over. So those hardline abolitionists chose Fremont as both a strategic and an incendiary candidate. Fremont had previously been appointed by Lincoln as commander of the Department of the West, a strategic and prominent military post which Fremont then squandered by overplaying his anti-slavery tactics. In fact, Fremont declared martial law in the whole state of Missouri. He promised to arrest and execute any civilian with secessionist sympathies, and he declared the emancipation of all enslaved persons within Missouri's borders two years before President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. When Lincoln heard about it, he fired him from his post at once. But when President Lincoln got word that this irascible former general had been nominated by a political convention, one that included only 400 delegates, Lincoln responded as he was wont to do by quoting the good book. Lincoln appealed to a passage about David, back when David was running scared from King Saul in First Samuel chapter 22, saying, "...and everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto David." and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. The overlap in the number allowed Lincoln to use that quotation to disparage not only Fremont but also that ragtag group of disaffected Republicans that supported him. But... One wonders whether that was a good choice of a Bible passage because, after all, David eventually defeated Saul and became the greatest king Israel has ever known. Perhaps Lincoln could have found a better allusion to the Bible to make. At the very beginning of Mark's gospel account, we hear another biblical allusion— one whose intention might escape us if we don't listen carefully. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark uses these words to name John the Baptist following the footsteps of the prophet Isaiah. In fact, Mark isn't the only one to do it. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them, liken John's message to the prophetic words of Isaiah 40. As far as the early Christian community was concerned, John was the one who prepared the paths of the Lord to to make that way straight and clear. But I wonder 2,000 years later, when we think of John the Baptist, whether we miss the connection the Christian community was so easily making with what the prophet says to us, and to try to trace that connection, we have to go back even further than John and Jesus. We have to go back about 540 years earlier. Not to Israel, but to Babylon, where God's people were living in exile. Back then, God's people were desperate for some good news. For 60 years, they had suffered under the tyranny of the Babylonian kings. Jerusalem had been ransacked by invaders, The holy temple, the very seat of God's presence, had been destroyed. God's people had been carted off in captivity. The leaders had been executed. The calamity that befell God's people, therefore, was not only political and economic, but also theological in nature. How could God's people continue to believe in God when God seemed to have failed them so completely? Who could possibly make sense of what had happened without also abandoning the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Sarah, Rebekah, and Rachel? Into that theological void, the prophets had spoken. Prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the first part of Isaiah. Amos, Hosea, and Obadiah, those prophets had helped God's people recognize that it was not God who had abandoned them, but their leaders who had forgotten God and God's ways. The only language that the prophets could find to explain how God had allowed such a disaster to befall God's people was to appeal to the language of judgment and condemnation. God's people had gone astray, they prophesied, so God punished them severely. But after 60 years of total humiliation, God's people had heard enough of that. They were tired of the children's teeth being set on edge because the parents had eaten sour grapes. Something had to change. A new theology was needed. Like a gentle breeze blowing across their faces after a summer storm, the prophet Isaiah brought words of consolation to God's people. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term. Her penalty is paid. She has received from the Lord double for all her sins. At last, God's word to God's people Was comfort. The debt of their sins had been paid, including the interest that was due. God was prepared to do a new thing, and that meant salvation for God's people. Now the time had come, Isaiah declared, for God's people to make a highway through the wilderness a wide and impressive boulevard, like the streets they had seen in the city of Babylon. But unlike those in Babylon, this freeway would stretch through the desert places so that it might reach God's people in their distress. For decades, God's people had seen their captors parade their own gods up and down the city's streets, in festal processions designed to remind the people that their God was king of the universe. But now, now it was God's turn. The God of their ancestors would come and reveal God's glory, God's magnificence and might until all people could see it together so that no one would mistake a tragedy for the abandonment of their God. To get that message across, a voice cried to the prophet, cry out. But the prophet, unsure of what to say, said, what shall I cry? In other words, what words could I possibly say to bring comfort to my people, to help them have faith and hope again? And the voice replied, tell them that all people are grass." Remind them that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Help them see that the empire that surrounds them is here today, but gone tomorrow. Tell them that their God is coming to save them, and that that God will lead them like a shepherd, feeding the flock with justice, gathering the lambs in his bosom, and leading them so gently that even a nursing ewe could follow along. That is what Mark had in mind when he begins the good news of Jesus. A half a millennium later, after about as much time as has passed since European settlers came to this continent, God's people were again surrounded by imperial oppressors. Into that world, the good news of Jesus Christ began to unfold with the proclamation of John the Baptist. Again, this is God's consolation for God's people. God's people were desperate for good news. And this time the good news sounded like this. The one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Of course, John went out into the wilderness, clothed in garments of camel's hair and a leather belt, eating the uncivilized food of locust and wild honey. John knew that if we are to prepare a highway for God to meet God's Savior, it must be found in the desert places. God knew that it is always in the wilderness, apart from the structures and institutions of empire, out where the broken-hearted people gather that God will come and save them. Whenever God saves us, it is always an act of disruption, an unsettling of the status quo that has imprisoned God's people. And if God's salvation comes to shake us loose, that it means the highway we must travel to find our god is always the road of repentance but how often do we hear the word of repentance as a word of comfort and hope 2000 years later it's easy for us to mistake the biblical allusion that mark and the other gospel writers are making we have to work pretty hard to hear the invitation to repent with the same spirit of comfort and hopefulness that John the Baptist invoked 2,000 years ago. It's no accident that all four gospel accounts link Isaiah's message of comfort with John's baptism of repentance. Because repentance doesn't mean enduring harsh words of judgment and condemnation. It means turning away from them. Because we can see that God is doing a new thing. That those words of condemnation no longer have authority in our lives. Repentance is that great and hopeful disrupt- disruption of our lives which our souls crave. Repentance is the food of the anxious spirit. The balm of the grieving countenance. The light of Of the wayward conscience. Repentance is daring to believe that God can and will come to save us even though the world would have us believe that God's salvation is already past. Repentance means turning aside to find the one who comes to rescue us. It means believing that God's words of comfort and reassurance are meant for every single one of us. Surely that is good news that we too are desperate to hear.